Welcome to LaGrave Avenue CRC's Sermon Podcast. While James is often thought about as a book that depicts how we should act, he also gives us a very important description about religion. He offers a twofold example of false religion and a twofold explanation of true religion. You're listening to Pure Religion by guest minister, Reverend David Bast. The Lord be with you. Friends, good evening. It's good to be together in worship this evening. Our scripture lesson is from the letter of James, chapter 1, beginning at verse 18. He, that is God, the Father of the heavenly lights, as James has just referred to him, he chose to give us birth through the word of truth, that we might be a kind of firstfruits of all he created. My dear brothers and sisters, take note of this. Everyone should be quick to listen, slow to speak, and slow to become angry, because human anger does not produce the righteousness that God desires. Therefore, get rid of all moral filth and the evil that is so prevalent, and humbly accept the word planted in you, which can save you. Do not merely listen to the word and so deceive yourselves, but do what it says. Anyone who listens to the word but does not do what it says is like someone who looks at his face in a mirror and after looking at himself goes away and immediately forgets what he looks like. But whoever looks intently into the perfect law that gives freedom and continues in it, not forgetting what they've heard, but doing it, they will be blessed in what they do. Those who consider themselves religious and yet do not keep a tight rein on their tongues deceive themselves, and their religion is worthless. Religion that God our Father accepts as pure and faultless is this, to look after orphans and widows in their distress and to keep oneself from being polluted by the world. This is the word of the Lord. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we bow in your presence. May your word be our rule, your spirit our teacher, and your greater glory, our supreme concern, through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. So we're uh, looking tonight at the letter of James, more of a sermon, really, than a letter. Uh, and of course, James famously uh, has aroused different opinions, different attitudes through the course of church history. I happen to be... Uh, doing some teaching this morning in my own church about the doctrine of Scripture and the canon, the question of the canon. How did the early church come to recognize? They didn't, it's sometimes misstated as though the church created the canon. The church put its stamp on the list of books that was, that's what canon means, it's a list. Uh, as though the church stood above the Scripture and uh, one great theologian, a contemporary theologian named John Webster said that the church didn't create the word, the word created the church. That's how it worked. What the church came to do was to recognize the authentic word of God 
in the writings uh, of the apostles. And there was very little question about almost all of them, but James was one of the books that was sometimes wondered about. Issues were raised, and if you know James, and uh, you're familiar, and I think all of us here probably do, you know that it has to do with uh, James' doctrine, apparent doctrine of justification by works rather than the Pauline doctrine of justification by faith. And of course, James isn't teaching any such thing. What James is doing is explaining what justifying faith is actually like. I think he would have approved of a, of a statement of the great Charles Spurgeon, the um, 19th century Reformed preacher, who said once that faith that doesn't change your behavior will never change your destiny. So real faith, saving faith, is transformative faith. It's faith not based on works, but faith that issues in works, and, and uh, specifically the works of religion. So we have this classic passage um, of famous verse at the end of James 1 where he defines pure religion. You, you like pure Michigan? How about pure religion? Because James spells it out right here. Religion that is pure, uh, that our God our Father accepts as pure and faultless is this, to look after orphans and widows in their distress and to keep oneself from being polluted by the world. True religion, another way to put it. Uh, but before we get to that, think a little bit with me about that word religion. I don't know about you, but I've always had a slight aversion to the, to the word and the idea of religion. Because it's often used, I think, to, in a sort of evasive way. Colleges and universities used to teach the Bible. Now they have religion departments. Well, I guess that's okay. Uh, they're not churches. But, uh, or the old, uh, old canard, you know, I'm spiritual but not religious. You know, that we've heard that one. It's kind of made the rounds. What that actually means is I like to sometimes think big thoughts, but I don't like Christianity. That's what they're really saying. It's, the, it's not religion that bothers them, it's the Christian religion. Or, or even, you know, using it as a kind of smokescreen or a, a standoff at arm's length sort of thing. We, we used to have a neighbor who lived across the street, an elderly guy, and uh, he was a complete unbeliever. And uh, yet he was intellectual to some extent. He liked to read and we tried to have sort of a relationship with him, tried to, you know, befriend and all that. And uh, one day, my wife decided to pick up a copy of Tim Keller's Reason for God. And so we went across the street together, and we had this book, and we knocked on the door, and we said, hey, Bill, you know, we know you like to read, and you're interested in ideas, and we thought maybe you'd uh, enjoy this book, and maybe you'd want to talk about it, uh, some of the ideas that it raises. And he took one look at it, and he took another look at us, and he said, I'm not much interested in organized religion. And I wanted to say, no, wait, 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 I don't want to talk about religion, I want to talk about Jesus. 
It's not the same thing, you know. Faith, not religion, faith. And yet here it is. James uses the word uh, beautifully. In fact, uh, stop and think about it. John Calvin's magnum opus, he spent uh, 20-some years writing and revising it, and it was his life's work. He didn't call it the Institutes of the Christian Faith. He called it the Institutes of the Christian Religion. And according to Calvin, religion is born out of piety. Uh, And this is how Calvin put it. Um, Piety is that reverence joined with love of God which the knowledge of his benefits induces. For until men recognize that they owe everything to God, that they are nourished by his fatherly care, that he is the author of their every good, that they should seek nothing beyond him, they will never yield him willing service. So what is religion? It is our total response to God arising out of the realization that everything we have and are comes from him. Everything. All that we've got, not from our hard work, not from our good luck, Everything comes from his fatherly hand. He is the author of all good. And all that we have and are ought to flow back to him in thankful worship, praise, and service. That's religion. So, uh, in a sense, religion is just giving God his due. And in fact, we use the word often in that sense, it's whatever you've given your heart to. That's your religion, right? You organize your life around that which, which, you, which you've given your heart to. So for some people, religion is a game, or religion is money, or religion is family. For us, it's God. So we turn uh, then to James. And again, before we get to the definition, notice that James spells out for us the basis for our religion. Uh, All that we do, and all that we believe for that matter, is derived from Holy Scripture, from the Word of God. And so James starts out by reminding us of the Word of truth that actually gave us birth. We come to life spiritually through God's Word, His Word of truth, under the operation of the Holy Spirit. And then uh, he, he wants to emphasize, take note of this, brothers and sisters, Uh, Then there comes comes this business about being slow to speak and quick to listen uh, and slow to become angry. And it sounds like wonderful advice. Later on, if if you're familiar with James, you know he says quite a bit about the tongue in chapter 3 and the problems that come from uh, talking too much. (laughs) So it it, it does, on the face of it, sound like just basic good interpersonal, you know, Like your mother used to say, you've got uh, one mouth and two ears, so listen twice as much as you talk. I was preaching not too long ago at a little church in the area, small place, small um, sanctuary, and right in the front, almost maybe the second row, there was a whole row of kids, looked to be about 12 or 13. One adult was there sort of 
not paying what I thought was careful enough attention to these kids because they were whispering and they were poking and they were wiggling. And, and it, during the sermon, it was so distracting. I thought about stopping and saying some stern words toward them. <laughs> and then after the service, I thought, well, maybe before, I, before they leave, I'll ask them to stay and I'll have a word or two with them. And then something said, you know, you're a guest preacher here. They, there's a pastor in this church. That's more his, if he wants to, that's not your place. So after the service, I happened to be talking with a, a member of their congregation, and I said something about those kids. Yeah, she said, I know it. They're, they're kind of a handful. I wish we could get them to sit off to the side. But, you know, they all come from unchurched families. And a member of our congregation makes sure that they get there every Sunday and brings them back again on Wednesday for our kids' club. And I just said, thank you, Lord, <laughs> for helping me hold my tongue and not be a fool or worse. Here are these kids. They're, they're in church, you know. They don't know how to behave. We used to do it in the balcony, but at least it was in the balcony. <laughs> there are people here who can testify to this. <laughs> I won't name names. So yeah, sounds like good advice, right? Hold your tongue. You'll often get in trouble for shooting off your mouth, but very seldom for keeping quiet. Is that not true? But notice... The context, what James is talking about, is not ordinary listening. It is listening to the Word. That's what he's urging us to do. Don't be talking, talking, talking all the time, but listen to the Word uh, which gives life. Because, uh, therefore, get rid of all moral, verse 21, get rid of all moral filth and the evil that is so prevalent and humbly accept the word planted in you which can save you. It is the scriptures to which he calls our attention. Our religion and everything else about our faith is rooted there in the word of God. We are under the authority of the word of God. Uh, the most fundamental thing there is really in the church. It's where it all begins. I mean, there are more important doctrines than the authority of Scripture, I would guess. But their source is in the Scriptures. I happened to be listening uh, recently to a recorded lecture uh, some years back from the late J.I. Packer, that great name, evangelical theologian. And he said, you know, if I were going to teach adults about the faith and help them go deeper, lesson number one would be on the authority of Scripture. Because it's the dividing point. And it determines everything that comes after. Uh, why do I believe? Let me, let me just have an aside here why I believe in the authority of Scripture. Number one, because this is what Scripture's testimony is to itself. It claims to be the Word of God. All Scripture is inspired says Paul. Uh, literally, God breathed. You've heard sermons on that text. 
through the medium of human authors, yes, he doesn't destroy their humanity, he doesn't overwhelm their creatureliness, it's still human words, but it's God's word in human words. Jesus sensed himself to be under the authority of Scripture. In fact, he thought it was really all about him. We, we heard that famous passage from Luke 4. This wasn't planned. But Jesus gets up in the synagogue, a classic passage from Isaiah about the ministry of the Messiah. And he says, today that Scripture is fulfilled in your midst. In other words, it's about me. Isaiah was writing about me. What an audacious claim. And yet we believe him, don't we? It's all about him. Moses wrote about me, Jesus says in John 5. And yet, not only did he believe that the Scriptures were about him, he believed that he himself was bound under their authority to do what they said he would do. So you remember on that last fateful night in the garden, when Peter draws his sword and he wants to fight it out with the crowd that's coming to arrest Jesus, Jesus tells him, put it away, Peter. Don't you know that I could call 12 legions of angels? But if I did that, how could the Scriptures be fulfilled? The Scriptures must be fulfilled, said Jesus. So you want to be like Jesus? Live under the authority of Scripture. Let Scripture teach you how to behave and what to believe. There's a simple test, really. Does the Bible have the power to, to say no to you when you want to do something and it forbids it? Here's another Flip side to that test, does the Bible have the power to say yes to you when it tells you to do something you don't want to do? Like maybe love your enemies or people you find disagreeable? It's the authority of Scripture, right? But the ultimate reason we believe this is because of the, what Calvin called the inward testimony of the Holy Spirit. The same Spirit who inspired the writers needs to work in our heart so that when we open this book and read what it tells us, we say, this is the Lord. The Lord is speaking to me. I will listen. Like little Samuel, remember? <laughs> Speak, Lord, your servant is listening. So let's listen then. And I mean, for goodness sake, we're letting James define religion to it for us. So we're... we're living into the authority of Scripture here in this passage. Before he does, though, I don't know if you notice this, he, uh, he talks about two forms of false religion. False not because they're uh, untrue. It's not so much that they're, you know, counterfactual to the Christian claims. They're false in the sense that they, they really fool us into thinking we're practicing the Christian religion when we aren't. And twice, if you caught it, he uses the word deceive. Do not merely listen to the word and so deceive yourselves. Do what it says. 
Verse 20, that's verse 22. Verse 26, those who consider themselves religious and yet do not keep a tight rein on their tongues deceive themselves and their religion is worthless. So before we get to the true religion, we have two versions of false religion, deceitful, counterfeit Christianity. What are they? The first one is hearing without doing, just listening to the word, maybe nodding our heads and saying, oh yeah, that's great, and then, uh, I can quote Bible verses to you. But then we don't go actually put it into practice. We don't do what it, Jesus, you remember used the analogy, in fact, we sang this tonight. I, this was all put together by the Holy Spirit, but my hope is built on nothing less. On Christ the solid rock I stand, all other ground is sinking sand. What, where does that come from? That's the end of the Sermon on the Mount, the parable of the two builders. And Jesus describes them this way. He differentiates between the guy who built his house on a solid foundation of rock and the guy who built it in a creek bed so that when the seasonal rains came, it just collapsed. The one who hears my word and does it, that's the person who builds on the rock. Now, James uses a little different uh, figure of speech. He, he compares it to a mirror, looking in a mirror. Anyone who listens to the word, verse 23, but does not do what it says is like someone who looks at his face in a mirror and after looking at himself goes away and immediately forgets what he looks like. But whoever looks intently into the perfect law that gives freedom, there it is again, there's the word, and continues in it, not forgetting what they've heard, but doing it, they will be blessed in what they do. So you get, you get the picture. A mirror is an objective standard, right? It's not like a painting. A mirror shows you what's there, which is why many of us no longer care to look into mirrors all that closely especially as we age. Am I right? Uh, yeah. But how, how silly, how ridiculous, how absurd to look at a mirror to check yourself and say, hmm, looks like I got a big glob of spaghetti sauce on my chin. That's good to know. Okay, see you later. Got to go. No. Why even bother looking if you're not going to act on the information that you receive from that. Uh, so that's James's point. Why bother reading this book? Why bother listening to sermons? Why bother with any of it unless you're going to put into practice the things that you hear? Hearing without doing is yourself deceiving if you think that's the Christian religion. And the second deceitful form or, or false form is talking without talking a good game without transformation, without inner transformation, which is the work that the Word wants to do in us, in our lives. So James says, those who consider themselves religion and yet do not keep a tight rein on their tongues deceive themselves and their religion is worthless. You know, I, th I think we've all 
probably run into people who talk a real good spiritual game. They can quote the Bible. They can talk about theology. But you ask, where's the reality? Um, people can talk a lot about the power of the Spirit, and you wonder, where's the fruit, right? It's all about fruit. Nobody captured this better than Bunyan in Pilgrim's Progress. But Pilgrim's Progress is kind of my go-to because Bunyan knew the church inside and out. And though he lived 400 years ago, uh, what he says is just as relevant and as visible and recognizable today as it was when he wrote it. So he has this character, talkative, who catches up with Christian the pilgrim and hopeful, his companion. And talkative is a, a kind of an impressive guy. He, in fact, he takes hopeful in. Hopeful's a younger Christian and not quite as experienced. And hopeful Here's this guy, and he thinks, wow, here's a great saint. Talkative comes up to them, and, and Christian says, well, why don't you engage him in conversation? You know, talk to him. He, his name is Talkative. So Hopeful does, and Talkative says, I will talk of things heavenly or things earthly, things moral or things evangelical, things sacred or things profane, things past or things to come, things foreign or things at home, things more essential or things circumstantial. And Christian says, don't be taken in, hopeful. I know this guy. Religion hath no place in his heart or house or conversation in its older sense of behavior. All he hath lieth in his tongue, and his religion is to make a noise therewith. I have been in his family and have observed him both at home and abroad. I know what I say of him is the truth. His house is as empty of religion as the white of an egg is of savor. That's talkative. And interesting, Christian goes on to say, you know, in the day of judgment, it will not be asked of you, did you believe? <laughs> the judgment... Bunyan says, is compared to the harvest, and in the harvest, men only care about fruit. That's all that ultimately matters. Was the fruit there? So, okay, not hearing without doing, not talk without fruit, but what? What then? Well, this beautiful twofold definition, according to James. Religion that is pure and faultless, acceptable to God, to look after orphans and widows in their distress, and to keep oneself unstained or from being polluted by the world. Interesting what he doesn't mention. Nothing about when we think, what do you think of when you think of the term religion? or religious people, going to church, the sacraments, singing hymns, listening to sermons, all good, <laughs> all that worship stuff. But James isn't talking about what we do on Sunday. He's talking about Monday through Saturday religion. And the first part of it, he says, is to care for widows and orphans who are in Scripture 
the personification of the defenseless, the poor, those who lack protectors, those who lack privilege, those who lack access to all the things that surround us and keep us safe and comfortable. Look after them, says James. That's the first thing that we ought to be doing. You know, this is part of Job's defense of himself. You, you remember the story of Job and how he kept saying, yeah, I don't deserve what's happening to me because I've been, <laughs> I've been a religious person. I've been, and the story testifies of him that he was the most righteous person in all the East. And Job defines his righteousness, his religion this way uh, in chapter 29. Whoever heard me spoke well of me, and those who saw me commended me because I rescued the poor who cried for help and the fatherless who had none to assist him. The man who was dying blessed me. I made the widow's heart sing. I put on righteousness as my clothing. Justice was my robe and my turban. I was eyes to the blind and feet to the lame. I was a father to the needy, and I took up the case of the stranger. I broke the fangs of the wicked and snatched the victims from their teeth. Wow. I wish I was like that, you know? How are we doing on this score? And as much as you did it, to one of the least of these, my brothers and sisters, you did it to me. And then, just when we're all worked up and ready to join some progressive movement, James adds, oh, and keep yourself from being polluted by the world. All that nastiness out there, all the, the filth in our culture, in our society, the stuff that would dirty us and rob us of purity mentally, spiritually, all the pornography, all the violence, all the, you know, the abuse of creation of God's good gifts, um, all that stuff. Keep it, keep yourself from it. That's true religion. And when we look at those two things together, lo and behold, what a, what a wonderful balance this strikes, right? Because in the one case, you've got something that's more outward-looking and activist, and it appeals to Christians on the left, and it's socially uh, relevant, and it's getting alongside and being on the side of the poor and all. And on the other hand, you've got another stance that is about personal holiness and it's about protecting yourself from the world, engagement with the world, protection from the world, uh, guarding your soul and your mind and your family. Uh, and so we've got this wonderful sort of balance, left and right, personal holiness, social action kind of makes me think of something we used to say in another context. What God hath joined together, let no man put asunder. Right? 
So there it is. Um, do you believe in the authority of Scripture? I'm just saying, this is pure religion. Uh, it's not my idea, but it's in the book. I do, though, have one last thought. I guess I'd like to leave us all with this. Thank God we're not saved by our religion. Because how far we all fall short. Thank God we're saved by grace through faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. Thank God that our salvation is a gift. Thank God that we can be clothed in Christ's righteousness alone, faultless to stand before the throne. So hang on to that. But meanwhile, let's be a little more religious, shall we? In the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, amen. Lord, your word convicts us and compels us to acknowledge how far we fall short, to confess the sins in our heart and mind, some of them sins of impurity, dabbling with things and going to places we know we shouldn't, some of them sins of indifference, failing to help when we could and should. Lord, have mercy upon us. Grant us your peace. We confess our sins to you and pray for the grace and strength to live for the glory of the one whom we love, the Savior of our souls, the Lord Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to the Grave Avenue CRC's Sermon Podcast.